Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. We'll start just, we're going to read Psalm 24, so uh, let's go for it. It says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord's and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. So imagine, okay, the temple in Jerusalem for a moment, and it has just been finished. They've finished building it, and they're having their first ceremony in the temple where they are inviting gods to be in this building, that he has had them build this big temple for them. And this psalm is a poem, is a prayer that was most likely read as part of that ceremony. It's about God's presence coming in. It's about the entering of God's presence. And it's also about the invitation, inviting God's in. And it's meant to be a little bit daunting. Okay, As you read this, it should be a tiny bit, perhaps even unsettling, uh, uh, maybe even to make you feel slightly nervous, because this is the moment you are inviting God to show up. You are inviting God in to take his rightful place to be in the temple. And when God is present, he is in control, not us. So you're meant to kind of read it with that sort of respect. And so when the temple actually was finished, King Solomon, so he built the temple, brought the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. And the Ark of the Covenant is, uh, well, effectively, it's just a box with the, the, the law that was given to Moses. It's a very elaborate box. I'm somewhat underplaying it. Um, but it was a thing that they carried in to the temple. And actually, Israel would carry this thing round with them for generations. Uh, and the ark contains the law as given to Moses. And it represents something. It represents the presence of God with them as a people and represents their agreements between God and his people. So the ark is, is very, very important to them. And so it's carried carefully into the temple. And they carry it very carefully because the last time they tried to move it, um, so Solomon's dad, King David, he, he brought it into Jerusalem uh, and they kind of moved it a bit wrong. And one guy put his hand out to stop it falling over and uh, he touched it wrong and was struck down dead. So they're all very aware, okay, don't mess with the presence of God. Uh, this is a very big deal. So this moment, this ceremony, this point in Israel's history is uh, very important. 
So Solomon does this. He brings the ark into the temple, okay? Uh, and this psalm is read out. And uh, it's, yeah, no one's coming in. It's the wind, I think. So as we work our way through this psalm, we, we see that this is what's happening. It's about the presence of God coming in. And it's also about us inviting in God's presence as well. And it asks us a few pretty big questions that are worth thinking about. This isn't just a a one-off poem that was only used once and then forgotten about. Actually, it's important for us today as well. And it's about how we enter the presence of God. It's about how uh, we get to be with God, almost how we get to live with God. That was the idea of the temple, is that God would live with his people in this temple. And it's also about how we invite the presence of God as well, and what happens when we do that. So when Solomon invited this, uh, this presence of God in, this ark with the law, this representation of the agreement between them and God and the representation of his presence, they invited this in and the priests took it into the holy place. And in Kings, it says, they then came out of the holy place and a cloud filled the whole house of God. So the priests couldn't even stand up to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The presence of God was so powerful that standing up was an issue for the priests. It was so overwhelming. It was so potent. It was so real. It was almost represented in a physical way, this idea that there was a a cloud there, very effective. It wasn't just a concept that they all agreed. Yeah, it's a temple. There's a room with God's presence in, but it doesn't really make any difference to our lives. Actually, they saw God's in the temple. It was a very real thing. So we're going to work our way through this psalm with some respect and some trepidation even. Uh, And it uses a a poetic picture, this psalm, of a king. Uh, And the end of the psalm describes this king as the king of glory. And this psalm explains who is this king, uh, how do we approach the king, and how are we blessed by the king. And then it ends with a provocation for us. So, so let's think about who is this king? Well, the, the first few verses give us a clue of that. It says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So this psalm we think was probably written by King David, uh, the second king of Israel and probably its, its greatest king. And he is the king writing about the true king. Even in himself, he, David had some power, he had some authority, he had some influence, he expanded the kingdom of Israel uh, quite significantly, but he's nothing compared to the true king, to, to the living gods. And this heavenly king, as David describes it, this, this king made everything, so made all of creation, owns all of creation, but not only that, he establishes it as well. He, he sets it in motion. He, he puts some order and purpose into it. So when he talks about it, he founded it in sea, on seas and established it upon rivers. It's not just, it's not just poetry there. There's, there's a clue. Actually, this was made without mistakes. Okay? This was made with meaning, with order, with purpose. Those rivers and seas actually bring life to the lands. They're very important. And so God had a plan and, and created it. Now, we may, when you read this, you may be thinking, well, that's fine, Tim. He established it on rivers and seas. He had a plan. And he put it into place. He's this great king. 
But why did it go wrong then? What's going on there? When we look around, we see actually that there's quite a lot of chaos. And there was in David's day as well, suffering even, and difficulty. How is this in the great plan that God had? Well, what we notice with this psalm is that there is a journey in this psalm. And it starts with this big claim. It starts with this big claim that God created everything, owns everything, and set everything in motion and kind of rules over everything. But then it ends with a request. It ends with a bit of a cry from God, actually, saying, look, let me back in. So he's hammering on the gates, wanting to return, wanting to come back in. It's almost like it starts with God creating everything and ends with him saying, please let me back in in order to bring restoration, to to save, to be back in the centre. The presence of God, as we see in this, is a, a restorative presence when we invite God in when he is in the temple when he is in our lives actually it brings change it restores order he brings us back to his original purpose when we seek his presence when we perhaps do what Solomon did there and put God in the center of the temple we put him in charge so we start this psalm this prayer this poem by talking about who God is This is who he is. He is the the creator of everything. He's the owner of everything. Uh, He is the establisher of everything. And it's interesting. It's a good way to start a prayer, actually, because it doesn't start with me. It's not about who I am. It's not about what's going on in my life. It's about this is who God is. It's about his place in creation, him at the center, not about our place in creation. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that I'm relatively obsessed with myself. I am. I think I'm a pretty big deal. Uh, I, I enjoy thinking about me and building my life around me. And uh, I think about my own situation, my own ambitions, even my own difficulty, whatever it might be. Uh, I find that uh, very quickly in life we come back to, well, how does this affect me? And when I read these verses, it reminds me actually of my place in the world. Actually, my place isn't at the centre of the world. And when life actually is a bit out of control or pressurised or perhaps when there's disappointment in life or even when there is great success in life, actually, these verses put perspective back in, put calm back in. And it's not about pacifying us, saying, there, there, it's okay, God's in control or uh, God's in the middle, everything will be fine. It's not telling us those things. It's saying, actually, let's look at the centre. God is there, points us to God's, not to ourselves. And then David asks us this huge question, okay? If this king is here, this creator, this ruler, this establisher, then how do you approach the king? How do you do that? He says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord's? Who shall stand in his holy place? Who goes up the mountain? Who can go and see God's? And he says, who's got clean hands and a pure heart? Does not lift up his soul to what is false? does not swear deceitfully. How do we approach God? It's an important question. It's a big question. How do you get near this creator of everything, this person that owns everything, established everything? How do you get in front of that person? Do you get some face time with God? How do you do that? Now, I'm a, I'm a massive music fan. I love going to uh, see gigs. I've 
loved doing that since I, was a, since I was a teenager, going to see bands. I would spend much more of my money on doing that uh, uh, if I wasn't more disciplined and didn't have you know, children I had to feed and things like that. Uh, I love going to see gigs, one of my favourite things. And uh, moving to Manchester was great for that. There's a gig on every night if you want to go to one. And years ago, Vicky and I went and watched a band's and I can't even remember what the band was, but we were in this venue called the Deaf Institute, which is a really uh, good venue. And uh, we were, they had a little bit of tiered seating at the back and we were sitting at the back and it was slightly raised up. And then I noticed this guy standing by the bar. And I was like, I know who that guy is. I know who that guy is. I'm like, nudging Vicky. I'm like, do you see who that is? And she didn't know who it was. I was like, it's Johnny Marr. That's who that is. It's Johnny Marr. Now, Johnny Marr, for those of you who don't know, is the guitarist of a band called The Smiths, probably one of the most important bands in kind of British pop history, I think. They're a very, very big deal. And in Manchester, Johnny Marr walks in, everybody kind of takes a breath. It's a big deal. He's like the king of music in Manchester. It's, uh, and I was just sat there, and I love music, and I was like, it's Johnny Marr. And Vic's like, just go talk to him. Just go talk to him. He's just stood by the bar on his own. It'll be fine. Go talk to him absolutely bottled it. No way I was going to go and talk to Joe. What do you even say? Uh, your, your band was all right. He'd be like, yeah, I know. And that would be it. That'd be the end of the conversation. You just wander off. And he's just a human, right? He's going to die one day. Uh, and uh, like me, he has flaws and failures like me. He's just a, just a bloke. And yet I still couldn't go up and talk to him. I still couldn't approach him. And how do, we, uh, how do we approach God, who's just more intimidating than Johnny Marr, right? Okay, who's a bigger deal. And David has a sense of the difficulty, a sense of the difficulty of uh, approaching someone who seems unapproachable. How do you get into the presence of God? And David says, well, you need to have clean hands. What's he means your activity, your behavior it needs to be pure and holy. If you want to get before God, you need to be behaving. Your life needs to look good. You need to behave well. But not only that, your heart needs to be clean as well. It says you have clean hands and a clean heart. Your hidden motivations, the very essence of who you are, needs to be pure and holy, right? Be able to be able to be before God. So the stuff that you do that everybody can see and the unseen, unseen stuff about you also has to be clean as well to get into God's presence. He can see everything about you. He knows your darkest thought and your greatest dream all in the same moment. Also, he says, look, you, you can't be worshipping anything that's not him. So if you, if you happen to think a little bit too much of music and Johnny Marr, perhaps, uh, then maybe that's a problem for you. You can't worship stuff that is not God if you want to be in his presence. You also have to be honest and trustworthy. You can't swear deceitfully okay this is the list of things list of criteria for you to be in the presence of God and if we're honest what we know about King David who wrote this psalm he ain't getting in we know that about David don't we he does not reach those standards King Solomon actually who maybe was hearing this psalm this poem being read out as the presence of God walks in actually what do we know about Solomon actually he probably wouldn't get in as well his behavior went downhill quite rapidly too And what do we know about ourselves? Actually, probably we don't hit those standards either. Clean hands and a pure heart. And what does it do? Even here, this is a massive hint about what Jesus was going to do for us. A massive clue. In Hebrews, Hebrews 10, and I don't know if the writer of Hebrews was thinking about this psalm then, but he says, look, 
since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Right, so remember that that box, the ark, was put in the most holy place and hardly anybody could go into that holy place, only the high priests. And he's saying, look, we have confidence to get into that place because of the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way, he opened up through the curtain, that is his flesh. And since we have a a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart. So what does God do? He changes our heart. Jesus changes our heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It's like he's saying, look, your hands and your heart are being cleaned by Jesus. That's how you get into the presence of God. So David asks the question, only those with a clean hands and a clean heart can get in. And then Jesus says, I'm here to clean you. He cleans us up. He makes us presentable. He means actually we can ascend the hill of the Lord. We can actually walk into the presence of God because of what Jesus does for us. Not only that, we can go with confidence. We can approach. And what happens when we get there? Well, verses 5 and 6 talk about the blessing that we get from the presence of God. It says he will receive blessing from the Lord. This is the person who goes up the mountain who gets to be with God. He will receive blessing and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. The presence of God is a, is a life-changing moment. A very big moment. It's a moment of of blessing, which is a word that perhaps doesn't ring in English in the way that it does in this this psalm, uh, and salvation. But when God is present, we receive. And sometimes you think, well, if you're going to go and be with someone, you you think of what you can take with you, don't you? If you're going around someone's house to see them, you might might bring them a present. Uh, David's uh, staying with us overnight. He bought us four cans of beer, which went down very well. He bought something with us, with him, to us. But when we go to the presence of God, there is nothing that we can bring. Actually, we just are receivers. We get given. We get given this righteousness, this salvation, this blessing. We are blessed when we are in his presence. When I was, uh, when I was nine, I think I was nine, at the church I was part of then, which is, uh, I'm a southerner, so it was down south, uh, the church that my granddad led at the time, and uh, it, it had a, a guest speaker come and, come and speak, and I can't remember anything he said because I was nine and he was boring, and that's, uh, that's how it works when you're a nine-year-old lad listening to anything for longer than a couple of minutes is just a, if you're not talking about football, then it's hard to engage as a, a nine-year-old me. Uh, and I remember I was sat next to my mum and this guy preached for what seemed like a millennia. Uh, and then he finished preaching and he got us all to stand up. So I stood up and then he just prayed that the Holy Spirit would move. And it's a very powerful moment. Ask God to be present. And there was no hype to it. I remember it pretty clearly. I remember thinking, this preacher's rubbish. What's he doing now? Uh, And he prayed. And actually, there was a real sense of the presence of God. Holy Spirit moved very powerfully. We suddenly knew that God was nearby. And I can't really articulate it any better than that because I was young. But even then, thinking there, there is something here that is unusual. God is near at that moment. And I was a little bit scared, a little bit overwhelmed, but a deep sense that actually God is good and he loves me and he's nearby. 
And that's quite a lot for a nine-year-old to process, okay? And it did uh, had a deep impact on me, and actually a deep impact on my life. I think it was a profound moment in uh, me becoming a follower of Jesus uh, and living the life that I've chosen to live and following Jesus in the way that I do. And that moment is a, a pivotal moment. And that is by God's being present, and I receive blessing from him. And David calls a whole generation to that, to seek God, to seek his face. That's what he says. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God. Now, I wonder what sort of generation we are. Perhaps even we might think of our, our city. What sort of a generation is the city of Manchester? Does it seek the face of the living God? Perhaps the generation of us that are in CCM at this moment, in our church across the city, are, are we a generation that seek, that seek the face of God? And actually, it's a good question to ask ourselves. It's quite easy to get into the routine of life, isn't it? Uh, the routine of relationship, the routine of working, uh, the routine of just whatever your social life is and family. It's pretty easy to get into that routine and just maybe forget what we seek. Do we seek the face of God? And then the poem ends with a little bit of a punch for us. Verse 7 says, Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And it's a provocation here, actually, to us. It's a, it's a question to be asked. Are we ready to let God in? And it's almost a, a picture, perhaps, of the Ark of the Covenant uh, with the priests carrying it at the gates of the city. And the gates are shut. That's the picture that we have here. And it's almost like God is asking to be invited in. Are you going to open these gates? And these gates, these very ancient doors, these very old ways of doing things, will they be opened? And these gates are a, a picture of security, aren't they? The gates are, are shut so we can't let anything in or anyone in. We're secure in our way of doing things. They're even a, a picture of self-sufficiency. We've built up our own protections. We can look after ourselves. Thank you very much. I don't need you in my life. And God is there knocking. Are you going to open these gates, these great gates, these walls of Jerusalem that can keep anyone out? Perhaps the walls of our heart, actually, that we have fairly well locked down, these gates to our lives. You think, well, God, I'm going to let you into these parts of my life, but these other parts are pretty well gated off, and I'm going to leave it that way. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm well protected. Uh, perhaps it's the, the gates that speak of affluence and wealth. Perhaps it's the gates that speak of power and control over our lives. And the king is at the gates in his presence, in his covenant, in his agreement with us to be his people and to worship him. And he's asking, lift up your heads, O gates. Lift up your heads, open the ancient doors. And the king is asking to be invited in. The presence of God, actually, in all that we know about its power, Remember the guy who put his hand on the box and then died because he did it wrong. Remember the, the clouds that meant the priests couldn't stand up in the presence of God. And it ends with this provocation of God asking, are you going to let me in? 
this powerful creator of all things, owner of everything, sustainer of everything, is he the imposing gods? Is he the arrogant god that just blasts his way in? At this moment, he's asking to come in. And we'll end with this. There's a question there. Are the gates shut or are the gates open for you? As individuals, as a people, as a generation, as a a generation that, that is seeking, are we seeking gods? But are we open to the king of glory or are we shut? Are we prepared to look at what we have that maybe keeps God out? That sense of our own control or purpose, sense of our own self-sufficiency, maybe even our own pride. Maybe in some cases it's the gates are shut because of disappointment. Things have not worked out how I would like them to and so I'm going to keep the presence of God. I'm just going to keep God there. Just on the edge is fine for me. Thank you very much. But who is this king of glory? The Lord is strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. There's a sense that when we let God in, actually he's for us, he fights for us, he wins for us. His son won for us on the cross. When we read Hebrews, we see that he cleans us. He means that he makes it so that we can be in his presence. It's a very powerful moment.